I want to have a chance to, we won't have time to talk about all of the artists that are in the installation. And Tina's already given a nod to several of them, but I wanted to bring up what Keith Piper's, the oldest work in there, he's a leading contemporary British artist, curator, critic, and he's an academic, tagging the other is the piece presented uh, with this uncanny prediction of tech surveilling and data mining. And he understands the role of Cassandra's in civilization. So I wanted you to just speak briefly to how you you give, he's sort of the ground floor of what you're investigating in the pieces presented. Yeah, I think, I mean, Keith is a really um, interesting artist um, who was who was part of, uh, you know, the black art scene and around England in the uh, 1980s. And that work is, and, and he was studying and, and I think also with people like Stuart Hall um, at, at Birmingham University. And so that work, when I first saw what he was doing, he was connecting, I guess, what was happening at the sort of avant-garde of post-colonial theory, um, which a lot of that was happening in London. And he was connecting that with the avant-garde of emerging media, very much the idea that like the show is about, you know, seizing the means of production and using that, that very technology that subjugates to kind of um, basically show itself. And that piece tagging the other, it feels like it was, um, it understood the future very clearly. Uh, it had used, used a video projection to kind of show this surveillance vision of the entire globe continually every, every 15 seconds rescanned uh, by this sort of radar image, uh, which, you know, was, again, to, to cover this kind of Foucauldian panoptic vision of, of total global surveillance. And he puts within this vast projection, the series of four monitors, which show the sort of different modes uh, in which individuals, and especially the black body and, and, the, and the colonial other is, is captured within this. And so tagging is also, I mean, think about the way we, we, we tag now, that wasn't happening in the late 80s when he made this piece, but, but you see the kind of ways in which the face, is being kind of, mm, as his own face is rotating in, in this virtual image, you see this kind of a forest or, or a kind of, um, he's continued, like the, the, the signs which continually start to cover his face are kind of keep popping up in the video stream. So you kind of get the sense that, that he's being sort of biometrically processed uh, before your very eyes and all these kind of terminologies that might kind of map him are being put on him. So and it's also a very clever piece, I think, in terms of thinking about how to use technology. He combines the projection, which was really video projectors had just come out at that moment, and he projects it literally over the top of the television. And also kind of showing the way in which all these different kind of technologies, that not, one doesn't replace the other. They all kind of build upon each other and become a, a sort of um, almost more of a kind of Blade Runner-esque, you know, sort of dystopia. Wow. That's the power of this. So, yes, Tina, did you want to speak to him too, to Keith Piper's work? No. Okay. That was great. Well, and another foundational piece that those who have followed the digital interpretation through art here is Graham Harwood on the Mongrel Project versions of ourselves instead of race at sex and identity. And so it's very, very moving. And for people to understand 
how monumental that project was in its introduction, and it's there in your exhibit. Yeah, well, we should say Mongrel is, is not just Graham Hartwood. It's actually a collective yes. um, of a group of individuals. It's a multiracial collective that formed a space in London called Artec, or Arts Technology Center London, which was essentially a community organization that gave access to technology to the people in the community, mostly Black and working class people. And so Mongrel was a, a group of um, sort of teachers and students at this space who banded together to make a series of art projects using these new technologies. So it included not only Graham Harwood, but also Matsuko Yokokoji and Richard Wright and Richard Pierre Davis and Matthew Fuller and Lisa Haskell. So there was like a number of people who were involved and it really. Jarman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mervyn Jarman, exactly. Yeah. So it, it speaks to this moment in the 1990s where you know, a lot of what was going on in the digital art scene was really sort of a very sort of conscious objection to the way that art had been um, practiced and understood and experienced up until that time in the West, right? Like this model of art um, that was very bourgeois, where you have sort of the notion of the genius, you know, artist, who of course is always sort of imagined to be like white and male. Uh, and so instead it was a collective of people from different backgrounds and um, working under the name of the organization, so sort of anonymously within the, you know, the name of Mongrel, although, I mean, not totally anonymous, we know who they are, but, um, and uh, not producing physical, discrete physical objects that were destined for a kind of art market, but producing like software-based artworks or, you know, things that could be sort of distributed freely or cheaply, and that would sort of circulate and become viral within a community. And that could be accessed by people, by, you know, sort of everyday people. And of course, you know, technology at that time was not super universally accessible, but there was this idea that at least if you could get access to technology at like one of these community art centers or something, that it was more accessible than having to, you know, buy a $50,000 painting to put on your living room wall, right? Um, so with Mongrel's piece in the show, you know, you walk in and on a table, you see a vintage CRT monitor. So um, it's one of these like old sort of cube monitors with, you know, the beige plastic frame and it's just a black and white screen. It's, you know, a lot of people today who are coming into the show who are students at UC Irvine probably have never seen one of these actually in the flesh. Um, <laughs> just sort right. of humbling. Um, but I have memories of using these computers and I know Paul does as well. I think Paul might actually have a few in his basement. And so um, on this vintage monitor, um, you can interact with a software program called Heritage Gold, which is basically a hacked version of the first edition of Photoshop. So Photoshop 1.0, um, they hacked it and they changed it so that when you go into the menu options in order to edit the photos and you have to work with a series of photos that are saved on the desktop, which are all labeled like black male or like, you know, yellow female, et cetera you open up these, these digitized photos of different uh, of individuals with, you know, who are tagged with different genders and races. And then you can apply the sort of filters to edit the photos, but the filters have all been changed. So that instead of the usual Photoshop filters, you see options to like make them look wealthier or make them look whiter. And so you have the opportunity to experiment with basically this utopian idea, again, that was popular in the nineties that you know, digital technology will make identity obsolete. And so it invites you to actually 
experiment with that, to actually sit down at a computer and experiment with changing somebody's race or changing somebody's, you know, gender or class at the click of a button. And, you know, it, it can be interpreted in different ways, but I think from our perspective, it's kind of, um, the Brits would say it's taking the piss out of this idea, this utopianism, it's sort of critiquing or satirizing and showing people sort of how silly it is. Um, this idea that you could actually change your identity with the click of a button, that it's really like not that simple, partly because we have to think about where our identity really lies. And, you know, fundamentally, it's a, it's about how we relate to the world. And it's not just as simple as throwing a new skin on. It's also about how we experience privilege and power, for example, or the kind of education level we have, et cetera. Like that's all wrapped up in part of it. So just, you know, changing your skin tone isn't necessarily going to totally change, you know, your identity or how other people see you even. And so we paired this work with some images that are mounted on the wall. They're like posters, basically, that were actually produced as the insert for a kind of, you know, cheaply printed like newsprint publication um, that they sort of would hand out freely. And so these particular posters are called Color Separation um, from a project called Nashville Heritage that's from the late 90s. And in these digital images, you see, um, you know, again, these faces that, you know, register as having a certain race and a certain gender and a certain age, and they've been digitally edited so that the sort of central face, like the, the sort of facial features on each head have been cut and then moved and then stitched on other, uh, like swapped, like face, it's sort of like that movie Face Off, if anyone remembers that movie, right, this idea that you could sort of like, just like suck the face right off of one head and dump it on another, and so you wind up with all of these mask-like heads that have these very visible sutures where like the digital stitching happened. And so when I look at those, you know, I don't see this like utopian panacea where like you can just swap your identity or swap your face with a button. It looks painful. You know, you see these big stitches and it looks monstrous, actually. Like it looks like Frankenstein's monster, you know, like these they're really disturbing images. And so we, we mounted those posters to sort of help create a context for people to understand what was going on with the Photoshop application on the computer, right? Like you're being invited to think about what it means to digitally alter your identity and sort of who gets to have the privilege of that. And what is that experience like? And that speaks to the kinds of impressions that I received when I'm asking about people who visited the opening on Saturday. And that registering of that disturbing feeling is what is the tension between taking in the art and taking in the lessons of, uh, of this exhibition. It's doing so very much. I want to give you both a chance to speak to Hassan Elahi. He was there at the opening. He was snared in the 9-11 roundup of perpetrators, and he was not culpable in any of the 9-11 attack. But he posted everything about a setting and he expresses he just loves how antiquated and obsolete his works become. It's a, a testament, he says, and owns it, how quickly we've been inured to tech. So uh, you two could respond to what Hassan Allahi is doing at the exhibit. I think Hassan's an interesting example, you know, in terms of like, you know, how people respond to being made, you know, basically um, surveilled or or made or, or seen. Normally we think that like when one is, in this case, the song was um, just after 9-11, he was traveling uh, from Florida where he lived and he was uh, caught up to and detained by some FBI agents who 
questioned him as they were doing back then, sort of pulled him aside and then took him to a room and, and questioned him for a while. And when he was finally able to, to get free, or be, be, even before he was he was left, the agent said, you know, well, you know, you ought to make sure if you're going anyplace, you better let us know because, you know, we, we don't trust you, um, basically. And uh, so what Hassan did, which is kind of counterintuitive maybe to many of us, is rather than trying to hide, he became hyper-visible. And he decided, well, it would be ironic to basically, what, what he calls to aggressively comply with the FBI's wishes to let them know where he was going. And he decided that what he would do is basically photograph where he was, what he was doing about every half hour of the day for the next 20 years. So that's what Hassan has been doing. He's in this elaborate project. He, he still continues to update the federal agents with just what he's doing, which amounts to usually what he's eating and when he's going to the bathroom uh, in particular, <laughs> periodically every day. So this has led to like literally tens of thousands of different images that he's sent to these uh, to them. But at the same time, also, he created a website called Tracking Transients in which he was also posting these images of that were also tagged with the location, also to let friends know um, where he was in case he was ever disappeared again, right? So that people will be able to, to track maybe where he'd been taken off to, because at the time, you know, suspects in the U.S. were being, you know, transported overseas where they could be interrogated without some of the legal protections of the U.S., so one of the things he was he was doing was he he felt like I need to make sure that like my friends you know can see if I don't post for an hour that something's happened to me and try to find me. So it's interesting to see, you know his is a great example for the different strategies of like how do we respond to machine vision or global surveillance? Do we try to hide or do we conversely kind of become hyper visible but control our own representation? That's great, Tina. So this project of Hassan's, the aggressive compliance, where he's sort of flooding the FBI servers with useless photographs of every urinal he's ever peed in, for example, um, you know, it's really humorous. And as Paul said, there also is this very, you know, sort of like, you know, touching side of it about, you know, making sure he publishes all of this data, you know, on the internet so that, you know, he can always be found in case the government suddenly like abducts him. But there's this question of, well, how do you make all of this you know, how do you make this sort of performative project, right? Like it's kind of like a performance that's been happening for 20 years on the internet. So it's it's on the internet and it's also durational. How do you manifest that in the space of a gallery or museum, right? Like how do you show that project? And so with digital art, there's always this question of what formats, what mediums, you know, how are you going to sort of present this in space for people? And, you know, a lot of digital art is natively digital or, you know, file-based, but that doesn't have to get translated, right? I mean, you even just have to think about, well, say we're going to show a website, like what size is the computer we're using? Is it a laptop or is it a monitor? And if it's a monitor, well, what size is the monitor? And by the way, what year is that monitor from? Is it a vintage monitor like the CRT for Mongrel? Or is it like a cutting edge Apple, you know, like there's lots of decisions that have to get made when we present digital art in a museum space. And with Hassan, he made a decision a long time ago to that one way he could manifest this project is by essentially putting a computer in the gallery space and opening up an internet browser and directing it to the Tracking Transients website that Paul mentioned. So it's one option. But another option he started exploring was printing the images. And 
a couple of years ago, he had the opportunity to have them printed as actually a giant banner that was installed in the two-story sort of stairwell of a space. And so, you know, it's like, you know, 30 plus feet high and, you know, something like, you know, almost 20 feet wide. And I had seen photos of that installation and, you know, Paul and I discussed it. And, you know, when we originally curated this exhibition for the museum back in Buffalo, it happened to be in the space that also had incredibly tall ceilings. And so we decided to borrow that, that printed banner. And, and for the show here in Irvine at the Beale Center, there's a new version of the banners that's um, a little bit more modest. It's scaled to the space in the Beale. But still you walk in and there's this enormous banner draped floor to ceiling over by the visitor's desk that just has thousands of these photos of Hassan's. And he's, you know, sort of, you know, written a program to sort of, you know, lay them all out. Um, but a couple of significant things about his aesthetic choices. So first of all, you know, why such a big banner, right? Like, why is it so huge? And I think that, I mean, at least for me, it's really a poetic way of helping art goers get a physical sense of the scale of Hassan's project. And also beyond that, a physical sense of the scale of these government surveillance programs and databases that you walk in and there's this towering thing that you actually can't take in all at once, right? And so it just sort of in a very concrete and visceral way communicates, you know, the larger than life scale and, and the fact that they're really operating at a scale at which, you know, no one individual person can even grasp at all, right? It's like so much data. Nobody can make sense of it on their own. Um, only in the sort of aggregate, right? And then um, the other thing that he's done, the other aesthetic choice was to overlay this giant grid of the photographs from his daily you know, track and transients performance with color filters. And it sort of looks like a rainbow pattern on these vertical bands of color. But for those of you who remember watching TV very late at night, you know, decades ago, there used to be a moment at which the screen would sort of black out and then this pattern, this pattern of sort of vertical bands of color would come on the screen and you would hear this tone and it would, you know, be, this is a test of the emergency broadcast system, right? And so that was the, the television station testing an alert that they would use to notify the public if there was an, a national emergency, right? So the program would be interrupted and you would have this emergency pattern come up on your screen. And so the pattern that you see in the gallery on top of Hassan is actually the pattern from the emergency broadcast system. And so I think Hassan is inviting us to think about the relationship between surveillance and emergency. Um, and to think of the construction of these giant databases as constituting a kind of national emergency um, and sort of drawing our attention to it. So, and there's one more aspect of it, which I think is very interesting and that I didn't appreciate until I actually talked to Hassan about the piece. He said that when he you know, overlaid that abstract band of, of color, he was also thinking about the history of abstract painting and mm -hmm. about all of the many abstract painters who come from marginalized backgrounds and who express themselves through the language of abstraction. And even in contemporary art today, there are many artists, you know, thinking, for example, African-American artists who work in an abstract idiom. And there's always this question of, you know, what are the demands that are placed, especially on marginalized artists, to express their identity in art? And, you know, Hassan himself is a person of color. He's Bangladeshi-American. And, you know, white artists are always allowed to paint in whatever style they want. 
But with artists of color, there often is this expectation that their identity must somehow inform their painting. And interviewers always ask them like, well, you know, oh, is this about your childhood or your experience of racism, et cetera? Whereas nobody ever asks a white abstract painter, oh, is your painting about your experience of racial privilege? And so, you know, I think Hassan's also playing something, something very interesting here about visibility and invisibility, because of course the, the color patterns almost become a kind of a filter or cloak over the images as well that sort of obscure these details of his everyday life. Um, and that's something I didn't even fully appreciate, I think, until until really recently. 